Um, well, it's really nice to be here and um, I'm sure that there's a lot of people here who have a lot of expertise. So I'm going to try and minimise um, my talk and give you enough to kind of get you thinking, but not enough that um, you don't kind of have time to ask questions. So what I'm going to talk about today is good practice in research collections and biobanking. And this has turned into a major activity in terms of research. So we have a lot of research collections, which are sort of like the fridge in the back room. And they are often used just by, you know, set up for one research project and aren't really intended to be used by a lot of other researchers. But increasingly, there is a move to actually set up biobanks. So these are collections which can be used by a number of different researchers for a number of research purposes. And I think that um, for me, the thing that actually distinguishes um, a collection and makes it a biobank is the fact that it can actually be it's set up in a systematic way to be used by a number of third parties. So it's not just the collection that you have in your back fridge that you go and look at and you work on yourself. It's something that is opened up for others. And this is a picture of a Danish biobank where it's all automated. So all of the samples are on these shelves and I'm sorry if it's a bit fuzzy, but I wanted to get the fact that there's thousands of samples here. And I think this is kind of where the science is going and this is where practice is heading. So today I'm going to talk about, um, uh, I'm going to focus on res research participants or donors um, to a biobank. And the things I'm going to talk about have relevance for research collections as well as biobanks. So when you think about a biobank, um, there are a number of stakeholders involved. We have researchers who may be the researchers who have actually established the collection or collected the samples, and there are the researchers who may access it at a later date. This is all hosted by an institution, but each of those researchers actually works in an institution and is bound by an institutional culture. A biobank only exists because of the donors, the people who actually donate their samples, their information for use in research purposes. It also cannot come into being without funding. So all of these bodies in, um, work together and actually you can't disentangle, you can't have one, um, sorry, you can't have a biobank without having one of these. But all of these um, entities are actually embedded within society. So we cannot disentangle some of the trends happening in society with what's actually happening with the biobank. And when we think of the Icelandic health sector database, that's the, the political um, situation had a, a big influence on what happened there. So for instance, even within those stakeholder groups, there is complexity again. So this, I just picked this up off the web, and this is Mayo Clinic's um, uh, 
diagram of their stakeholders. So you can see that there's a lot of different bodies involved in that and these are all the people that they have on their um, oversight committee represented. So a biobank is not an, something that you can disentangle from relationships. It's something that is firmly bedded within relationships and a series of different relationships. So let's turn to donors and good practice. And I'm going to focus um, quite a lot on collection because um, this is where practice has been. And my focus is very much on current practice and what's happening. And later on, I'm going to talk about future practice and where we might go. So as you all know, informed consent is a requirement for all medical research. And we have the Declaration of Helsinki, which lays down these requirements. It says that the overall plan and the possible risks and benefits of the research project should be told to research in, uh, participants. And before being asked to consent to participate in a research project, the person's concerns shall be specifically informed according to the nature and purpose of the research. They must be informed of the nature, extent and duration of the procedures involved, in particular details of any burden imposed by the research project. Now this is sort of the quintessential formulation of informed consent and it's the only um, requirement that's actually enshrined in our law in terms of informed consent. But it's in, in the UK Theoretically, it only applies to clinical trials, but even so, it's being rolled out um, across different uh, forms of medical research. So for biobanks, there's real difficulties, as many of you will know, with this formulation of informed consent. First of all, it was designed for physical harm and one project research, and it's required at the beginning of the research process. And all of the details of the research must be specified at the time of collection. So when you first uh, sign up someone, then you must actually go through this process and tell them all about the research so that they can be informed before they make a decision. But it's difficult in biobanking to inform donors at the time of the collection of all the research uses and who will use it. And data is being shared and the technology is changing, which is adding greater complication to this. It's also difficult to anticipate all the informational risks if you think that biobanks are being set up for many years, as long as there's funding. But, you know, UK Biobank, um, we're looking at 30 years of um, collection and I'm sure that it may go longer. Um, ALSPAC has been going um, since uh, 1990 and I'm sure that will go longer. So it's difficult to anticipate all the informational risks over that period of time. And informational risks can be very um, individual specific. So we have developed mechanisms in the UK and I think the UK probably is um, one of the few countries which has really started to deal with these issues. So for anonymised tissue, certain research ethics committees may now grant generic approval to research tissue banks. 
and this was under the 2006 NRES standard operating procedures for RECs. And this permits a range of research to be carried out within the conditions of the ethical approval. So you don't need to seek any further project-specific REC approval. And if you get um, generic approval, a research tissue bank must meet various conditions. So they must have approval from the Human Tissue Authority and they must ensure that samples are anonymised. Now, most of you will be aware that there are moves to actually um, uh, uh, get rid of the Human Tissue Authority. So we must just be aware that these changes are going on and that things will change over the next few months. And it will be interesting to see what this government does. Um, uh, I'm sure they will keep the Human Tissue Act, but how they actually um, regulate that and what uh, they put in place will be uh, very interesting. So in terms of personal information, we also have mechanisms um, which uh, allow you to use personal information without consent. So for those of you who remember PIAG, it was replaced by the National Information Governance Board. Um, and this has responsibility um, under Section 261 of the National Health Service Act. And this enables uh, somebody to, a researcher to uh, apply to uh, obtain access to patient information including identifiable information without consent, but it's in limited circumstances and each um, application is assessed by a committee. So what this does is that it permits the common law duty of confidentiality to be set aside in specific cir um, circumstances for medical research purposes. And this must be in the public interest. So what is good practice in terms of informed consent? What, would sh what should we be doing? I think what we must be doing is telling people all that you can at the time of the collection about the research planned. Current practice is to ask for a broad consent for use of data for unforeseen research by unknown researchers in the future. And I think that, you know, this is a practice that has been developing. And this is all that we can actually do at this point in time. But I think that, there, that, that ethically this is problematic and people in the field have huge arguments about whether this is appropriate. So we also need to ask consent for a research ethics committee to make decisions on behalf of the individual. And this is something that I'm calling consent for governance because what happens is that um, hard decisions are delegated to other bodies, maybe an advisory board to the biobank, maybe to a research ethics committee. So people must know that that is actually going to happen. And also, good practice involves having appropriate mechanisms in place to enable um, transparent and accountable oversight. So let's think about withdrawal. And really, consent and withdrawal are two planks that are part of the bundle of um, obligations and rights that donors have. 
So research participants should be able to withdraw from research at any time. But is this possible when we're talking about biobanks? First of all, we have tiny samples that might be given out to a number of researchers, and data is used in multiple research projects. We need to have archived data sets when um, databases when, uh, are being uh, constantly updated. So this actually makes it very difficult to promise absolute withdrawal from a biobank and from further research. So what should good practice be? Um, some bioethicists have said that this is a bit like the Hotel California, that you can check in but you can never leave. And I think this is the case with biobanks. And what we should be telling people is that they can only withdraw from this time forward, that they can't, any previous information and sample will be retained. So we cannot say all of your information, all of your samples um, will be destroyed because I don't think that that is possible in all cases. But you may have a biobank where that is possible if you haven't let the sample go out to other researchers. So another issue that's increasingly coming to the fore is the issue of feedback. And so if you're thinking about the fact that we cannot make um, personal information anonymous as we start to build up these big resources of personal information and samples that are effectively creating a dossier or a file on individuals, then it's very difficult to make the, the richness and the detail in this data makes it very difficult to make the information anonymous. There's increased amount of information on individual also increases the likelihood of identifying serious treatable conditions and incidental findings. And this is particularly so as we're moving towards whole genome sequences. And many biobanks or say cohort studies might have an add-on which will include whole genome sequencing. So in this um, case, it really starts to ask the question, is there an obligation to feedback? And should we be feeding back results? And most biobanks are set up so that they actually don't do that. And some biobanks have firewalls in place which actually mean that the biobank itself could not actually retrace back to individuals. But that's not the case for every biobank. So what should we think, be thinking about in terms of good practice? Of course, websites to inform individuals about the research, because one of the things that keeps coming up again and again with public engagement um, empirical research is that individuals want to know that their sample's being used. So it's imperative that we do that. Newsletters are something that are, can be um, quite arduous, but um, some groups do, depending on the relationship they have with their donors or their patients or their research participants. But I think something we need to be doing is thinking about management pathways and thinking about, in the case of a serious treatable condition, and this is a very high standard, a very high bar to reach, what do we do? We must 
think about that possibility and how we deal with it in the future. So what about maintaining privacy? And privacy is different to confidentiality. And I'm going to give you a quote from a recent case. And in that case, um, Lord Justice Law said, subject to certain qualification, an individual's personal autonomy makes him, should make him, master of all those facts about his own identity, such as his name, health, sexuality, ethnicity, his own image, and also of the zone of interaction between himself and others. He is the presumed owner of these aspects of his own self. His control of them can only be loosened, abrogated, if the state shows an objective justification for doing so. Now, medical research is one of those activities that can be justified in order, and as used as a basis um, for justifying interference with an individual privacy. But I wanted to put that there to give you a sense of kind of how the courts are thinking about privacy. And that's, for me, is a very strong um, endorsement of an individual's right to actually um, exercise their autonomy and determine what happens to their information and those facts about their own identity. So if we're thinking about privacy, what should good practice be? Well, obviously, it, it harks back to um, what I was saying earlier. We need to tell participants how samples and data will be used, if possible. Also, you can use coding firewalls and IT mechanisms to actually protect data. You can have privacy impact assessments to see how you're doing in terms of um, protecting privacy. And these mechanisms come together um, to ensure ongoing support of the public, but also trust in the mechanisms and the biobank itself. So an important part of this are governance structures. And um, by governance structures, I mean um, all of the different elements that go into enabling a biobank to function. So I would say that regulation are the external bodies, such as the Human Tissue Authority, and the legislation that they operate under, whereas governance structures are the things which are relate to the biobank itself. But for me, governance also encompasses um, professional culture and good practice. So it's something which is uh, far messier, but also something that um, may change or be nuanced depending on the biobank. So when we think about governance structures, they're necessary to ensure accountable, transparent decision-making, to ensure ethical and lawful research. And we have governance, we have bodies that may act on behalf of research participants if necessary. So we need to build frameworks to ensure that the ethical, legal and social issues can be addressed over time. 
So what does this involve in terms of good practice? First of all, we need bodies that can make policy and decisions. And we've just done a big research project on governing biobanks in the UK. It's a socio-legal study which we're just writing up and hopefully the book will be out next year. And one of the key things that came out of that research was the importance of advisory bodies in helping to guide um, good practice, but also to develop strategy. So advisory bodies would typically be made up of people who were expert in the area and people who'd had experience of setting up a biobank before. So advisory bodies are crucial, I think, um, in helping uh, to develop a robust governance framework. But also you need good management structures and a good biobank manager, as you all know, is pretty essential. You need also the involvement of research participants. So this could be as representatives on an executive body or through um, the use of other mechanisms. Uh, the, for instance, the Biomedical Research Centre has a um, panel and they take decisions to uh, a patient group. And so there's different structures that you can use to ensure that um, donors or research participants, patients are involved in the life and the decision making in the biobank. The other thing is that governance structures that are set up for the internal running of the biobank shouldn't actually duplicate what's already happening. So there needs to be an assessment made of the current structures that exist within society. So for example, um, the Cartagene Biobank in Quebec wanted to set up uh, an advisory body to actually help them think about privacy. And there was, uh, basically the, the government did an assessment of what currently existed in terms of the regulatory framework and said, look, we already have a privacy commissioner. What extra will this body do? So I think that we need to make sure that um, governance structures are appropriate and that they're not slowing down research, but they're actually facilitating it and they're not duplicating what exi already exists. So I want to actually now just turn to future practice and what that would look like and how we would think about developing um, gold standards of practice in this area. So I think one of the first things um, that is a big challenge to setting up a biobank is the fact that research is global. We can no longer be thinking of a biobank in isolation. A biobank, as I said before, is dependent on a series of relationships. But a biobank is actually embedded within a system of networks. So this is actually an artist's representation of um, uh, uh, internet activity at a certain point in time. And I think this is really useful for thinking about biobanks because as I see them, they're increasingly becoming just um, places where tissues and data are held or as sort of nodes within this very complex um, system of different networks. 
So I think we will move to a point where researchers will apply to access one biobank, they will compare that with samples in other biobanks so that we will see a real change in the way that research is being done. And building this up infrastructure that will actually enable research is currently happening. So there was a big project, um, a, a European funded project called the BBMRI. And basically their vision is that you develop a system of networks within each country. And what's happened over the last year is that different countries have funded these networks. So we have Norway, the Netherlands, Sweden, Austria, and Italy who are funding basically a hub and spoke model. So you have one biobank which is actually um, leading the way is the coordinating biobank but then through that biobank you can get access to a whole series of other biobanks. And this has implications for our governance and how we set things up. So if you're establishing a, a biobank you have to be aware that you actually have to build in interfaces that connect you into this global network. And one of the challenges of actually being part of this global network is how you maintain the chain of trust. And what I mean by that is how you actually ensure that the consent that you have got from a donor is actually um, respected right through its use in different networks. And this is a challenge. I'm not saying this is easy. But as um, uh, my colleagues in um, Seattle are doing, they're saying what's important is, and they've worked a lot with indigenous people in the US, um, what Kelly uh, Edwards says is you look in the eye of the participant. And what you have to be able to do is that undertaking or that agreement that you have made with them when they enrolled in your study or in your biobank has to be able to follow the use of their sample and information. So one of the challenges, I think, is how we take this very detailed, nuanced um, collection of information and its use in, in different research projects. So how we build up from this detail to greater detail, we're not losing sight of that detail. But we then actually see this more in context and we're seeing this in terms of this global network. So um, for all of you who may not know the Alhambra, this is kind of um, the different things that you can focus on, the detail that you can focus on in the Alhambra and how we get to a view of a global research infrastructure, the Alhambra in its totality, but we can still keep the nuances of the original collection and the commitment that was made to um, a donor. How we can keep that all in one picture, I think, is the challenge for us, to keep it all as one perspective. 
I think that another challenge is how we embed biobanks in the healthcare structure. One of the issues for biobanks are the cost of establishing a biobank, but also maintaining it over time. And I think we can actually see that biobanks can become embedded in the healthcare structure, would actually involve a greater alignment between the um, clinic and the research domains, and how we can actually move from um, the, uh, the lab on the left to the bedside. How do we set up biobanks so that they are in that structure, so that people can feed in information that have been derived from a clinical situation, and that this can actually be put into a biobank or used in a biobank um, in a form that can then be accessed by researchers. And I think this is the way that we need to go, but it's a real challenge for developing future practice. So in conclusion, I think if, as we're moving forward, what we need to be doing is seeing biobanks as anchored in global networks. And this is a real challenge. We need to develop governance systems that facilitate this. So this then brings into question our current systems of research ethics committees. How do, do we have individual biobanks who are determining whether researchers have access to their samples or information? How do we set up those structures so that a researcher is actually seeing just one portal of entry into this network of biobanks and research infrastructures? And how do we embed biobanks within the healthcare structure to aid translational research? I think one of the things that we also need to be thinking about is seeing donors as partners in research. And we're developing new technology to enable this. So in the Encore project, um, which uh, myself and my team are working on, we're and, uh, and we're doing this with all the Oxford Radcliffe Biobank, we're looking at ways where we can develop software so that individuals can choose the research that they're involved with and um, can withdraw from consent. And that developing that process and developing that possibility will be a challenge developing the parameters for that are a challenge, but also that actually um, involves a huge cultural change about the way that we see um, research participants or donors to a biobank. So in conclusion, I think that there are a lot of um, elements of good practice that have been developed, but we have a number of challenges before us. And I think that in the next five years, there's going to be some very, uh, we're going to have to um, sort of deal and establish new governance mechanisms and new ways of doing things. Um, but I think it's quite an exciting time when we think about what the possibilities could be. So I'm very happy now to um, 
answer any questions. I just want to put these up on the screen and to acknowledge um, our funding support from the Wellcome Trust, the SPRC and the ESRC. And thank you for your attention. <laughs>